Hello and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Larry Lamb. Larry's a British actor and presenter who took up amateur dramatics while working in the oil industry in Canada. When he returned to the UK, he decided to take acting more seriously and in 1981 landed a role opposite Kate O'Mara in the BBC TV series Triangle. More big roles followed, including Archie Mitchell in EastEnders, Mick Shipman in Gavin and Stacey and Ted Case in New Tricks. Larry's also taken part in I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and appeared on Who Do You Think You Are? Larry Lamb, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Lovely to be here. Can we start today, Larry, by me asking if you could tell us about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life? I think probably, uh, it doesn't take too much thinking. My brother, two years ago, yes, it was, because isn't it funny, everything's got, got thrown out of bonk now with, with what we've been going through, but it was, it was at the end of 19, um, in October 19, my brother passed away in the Marie Curie Hospice in Newcastle. He'd lived um, up that way for many years, had become a sort of a, you know, more or less a full-time amateur Geordie. And so he'd been looked after, he had terminal cancer and, and Marie Curie took him into the hospice there up above the Tyne and, um, and, and I went and spent seven days with him, sleeping in the room with him and just being with him as he gradually sort of slept his way away. And um, so it was a bit, it, we, we, when we were boys, we were very, very close, but you know, life and time and circumstances just worked in a way that we, we got further and further apart. And um, we didn't really have any big bust ups at all. We just, you know, we went different ways over the years and we lived at opposite ends of the country. We would see each other now and again, but it was like, it was just, it just didn't work with us anymore. And, um, and then I heard he'd gone into the hospice. I tried to help him before in various ways because it didn't just happen overnight. There was a build up to it with various operations and things that, that had to be done but it all it all it all followed him and, and and all turned really ugly at the end and so I heard from people that were looking after him that it might be an idea if I went up there and I thought well I'll go up there and you know go and go and have a visit with him but you know that was it I just went and camped out in the room with him and spent the last week of his life there um, and you know for me without a doubt one of the most important things 
I've ever done was, you know, confronting that and sitting there and taking care of him and, and, you know, just holding his hand and talking to him, whether he was asleep or whether he was awake, because he couldn't speak anymore with what he had. He'd lost all of that. And um, so we, we, we became kind of like two little brothers again. In fact, the last really significant thing that I remember was we were, you know, it was a bit of a one-sided conversation because before he actually finally went to sleep, he, 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 could, he could only write down what he wanted. I, I, I was finding it very difficult to, to get what he was saying and lip reading, but, um, but he was writing things down there. So we were, we were, having, a, some, we were having some fun between us and just being, behaving like little boys. And, um, and then at a certain point, I, I was leaning over him and he looked up at me and he, and he, and, and he just put his, puckered his lips up and he pointed at him, sort of like, just pointed at his lips. And I said, you want me to give you a kiss? And he nodded, like, just like a little boy. So I gave him a kiss and stroked his funny old head and um, and we were just it was like that was it all the all the things that had gone wrong over the years and all the things that had made us drift apart kind of all got put right right there and then in that second it was like you know he'd forgiven me for for whatever he had against me and you know we made up which was was really really important to me and I think you know I think for him as well, and so that it was a it was an ex extraordinary moment, wonderful. I think also just, you know, you were going on a visit. I guess you you'd obviously known he was he was ill. Yeah, but maybe not how ill. Well, he'd come down to London so I could help look after him after he'd had the first operation, and so we lived together down there for a while. Um, but then, you know, every, everything went wrong again and off he went back up to the northeast and and then it all got, you know, it didn't it didn't stop the, you know, what he had was a throat cancer and it just did not stop. It carried on. And, and the next thing was, you know, we were back in touch again. It was all going wrong again. And, and it, as I say, it all led up to to me going back up there to see him, you know, to be with him when he finally went into the hospice. When you were in contact with each other and he was he just had the operation and and then and then it got the point where it was progressing and um he was getting sicker did did you ever together have any conversations about death and dying is it something he talked about no 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 not at all no it wasn't he was he was he was very very brave and you know he didn't he didn't want to have an operation and he sort of avoided it and avoided it and and I was trying to persuade him to get it done because you know that was the only chance he had but he was he just didn't like the idea of it at all and what it would do and how radical it would be and how it would affect his life but in the end he realized he was going to have to have the operation so I sort of went through all of that with him and and then and then you know was with him in the hospital and and then back at my place and and then and then it just carried on going wrong that was it that was the problem it just kept marching on and um whilst you know the surgery had obviously given him a little bit of a 
a break but there was too much going on so you know i in the end it was that it was that that it was that that drew us together but we certainly didn't talk about it um when he was lying there sort of half asleep and half awake he was like quite quite heavily sedated by that time you know we had some i suppose they were more stuff tumbling out of me and talking to him about you know how much everybody loved him and you know how sorry i was for the way that we drifted apart and I mean, saying all the things that would have been better saying before, you know, like when we when he was compass mentis and, you know, a conversation we should have had earlier. Sounds like it was still really helpful for you, though, to be able to have that time with him, have them conversations, have that last seven days. I mean, it sounds like it repaired a lot. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it was cer certainly long overdue and... Um, and it certainly it meant a lot to me and and as i say before he before he really started to be in a sort of a drug induced sleep he it certainly was it, it it was clearly a relief for him to kind of make it up between us but yeah and he was you know he was a wonderful guy he was a funny funny guy he made me laugh more than anybody i've ever known and we kind of shared a bit of that between us we were making jokes with each other and making a lot of faces that we made when we were little boys and we just reverted to, you know, I mean, that was the first time I'd spent six or seven days in the same room as him for 60 odd years, you know, that was it. Can you tell us what the end was like, what the last moments were like? Well, the thing is that I was in a terrible situation. I had somebody in the same boat as him back in London and I was, I was to, you know, to and fro, to and fro and, and in the end, the nurses that said like, you know, he was so deeply sedated. They just said, look, you know, we'll, we'll sit with him. You just, you know, you get, you know, you get back down south and see if you can be there and go and do the same thing down there, you know, with an old friend. And so I, you know, when they, when they made me understand, they'd be sitting with him, you know, right on the end. He said, they said it literally could be, and he'd gone on for three or four days when they didn't think he would go on, you know? And, um, and they said, look, you know, this, this could end very quickly or it could go on and on and on. And, you know, you need to get back. So I drove back down to London and, and, and that afternoon he passed on, that was it. So it was fine, you know? What's your brother's name? Wesley. Wesley, okay. And um, so there was no conversations about uh, deaf and dying when Wesley was ill, but um, w was was there any funeral plans made? No, no, he didn't. He didn't want a funeral. It was absolutely not like my mother, like her husband. None of them wanted a funeral. They just wanted, you know, they just wanted to be cremated and their ashes sprinkled. So that was it. We wasn't interested in anything like that at all. I was just wondering when you and Wesley were younger. You just mentioned your mum there, but. I was wondering whether, when you were growing up, whether death and dying was something that was talked about in the house, whether it was something that was open. No, 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 no. Oh, God, no. No, I, I spend a lot of time over in France, in the country, in Normandy, and, you know, I, I've got old friends over there who, who really, you know, they just confront death. I mean, I went for a, a walk around the graveyard with the old mother of a of an old mate of mine and she was well into her 90s and I happened to 
you know, I, I noted the first time I walked around the graveyard with her, um, that her gravestone was already there. It was there, planted, ready to go with her name and then engraved them and it was the year she was born. And then a little slash, and then all that had to be done was they had to come and put on the on the year that she that she signed out, right? And the next time, about a year or so later, because they have a big day, a national day, when you go to the graveyards and you know say hello to all the all the people that are in there and put flowers there and tidy the grave up. So it's it's the national day for the dead, you know. And um, so I was there with her son. And, and she and I were walking on. I said, hang on a minute, your grave was over there. Now it's over here. And she said, yeah, yeah. She said it was next to my cousin and I never really liked him. So I didn't want to spend the rest of the time there with him. So I've had it shifted over here where there's a few people I know. So like, it's a different attitude. You're born, you die. That's it. You know, it's part of the deal. You're not going to escape it. I mean, they're a funny old lot, the French, but they're a little, they're a bit more realistic when it comes to that. There's this whole thing of a, you know, I mean, it, it, it took me 65 years to realise I wasn't, I wasn't immortal. You know, when I, finally, when I was 65, I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to die. I'm on my way out now. You know, I've been on my way in and I'm very definitely a lot further in than halfway. So you know, you better start looking realistically towards the point where, um, you know, where the programme's going to be over, you know? Some of life's questions are harder than others. If you or a loved one are facing end of life or bereavement, Marie Curie is here to listen and help. Call our free support line on 0800 090 2309 or start a web chat by visiting mariecurie.org.uk forward slash support i was going to ask you if you ever thought about your own death yeah well you know I, I certainly wouldn't say i'm obsessed with it or spend a lot of time thinking about it but i certainly think a lot more about pegging out than i than i ever did before mm. you know you know that's it you know it's going to happen and so i mean if i talk to my family about it they'll get they'll get really annoyed i don't start talking about all that and you think well like it's going to happen that's it we're all going to die. It's the one fixed thing, you know, death and taxes. That's it. You ain't going to get away with them. So, like, I don't like the idea. I'm not, I'm, you know, if I could, if I could opt out of that, that bit of the deal, I'd definitely opt out, but you can't. So you just think, well, and you've got to be ready to go and you come in on your own and you go out on your own. You know, nobody's going with you. So that's it. I'm facing up to it and cheating it for as long as I can. Have you made any plans? Have you, you know, written, written a will, thought about a funeral, taught your family your wishes? No, no. Is that because you don't have them conversations or just because that's not something you're bothered about? Well, I think, I mean, as it stands at the moment, you know, I'm touching wood here desperately. Um, I'm I'm sort of figuring well I've got a bit of a, a bit of time left, so you know sooner or later if it gets if it gets near to it, um, you know one might make some sort of preparations. I don't know. I don't know. 
I think one of the one of the aims of this podcast for us is to use, I mean, obviously to support people when they're grieving um, and or when they're caring for someone who's who's dying. Um, but also one of the aims is to get people to talk a bit more about death and dying, because what we do know is if people plan for it, then the um, it can be a different experience at the end, not just not just for the person who's dying but also for those left behind and even just practical things like funeral wishes or writing a will or. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I could, I could, I don't know what I want them to do with me. I don't know. You know, I'll figure that one out further along, I suppose, you know, I suppose in a way I don't really, it seems that all my family get cremated. That's it. Um, probably the best bet. I don't know. I don't know yet. Maybe I'll be lucky and die in my sleep and won't know anything about it. And they can all get on and sort it out amongst themselves. So, you know, that's it. As long as they all have a good time and have a laugh. I might record something for them to play if they have a little ceremony. And, um, and hopefully on the day get inspired to say something vaguely witty that might make them laugh. But, um, and there's one or two people I've always said, oh, I'd, love you to, I'd love you to say a few words at my funeral if I beat you to it. Um, so yeah, there are, there are, you know, a couple of old friends who I know I would, I would love to say something about me. Mind you, they might not want to, but anyway, you never know, you never know. So no great preparations, but certainly I saw during the course of that week at the Marie Curie hospice, I certainly realized the benefits of, of, you know, being around with somebody when they're when they're when they're passing passing away, you know, and of actually talking and and and, and making peace. Yeah, that's really that was it. That was the great thing. And understanding that, you know, you need, even if the person appears to be sort of out for the count, you need to talk. You need to talk to them. And the and the nurses there were were wonderful. The whole thing, I I had such a good whilst in the midst of all that, I became a part of this sort of this family of all the people that work there are confronting this on a daily basis. And um, obviously, you know, it's, there's, there's an overbearing sense of, you know, sorrow about what's going on, but it's that, that element of, of hope that, that keeps, you know, that keeps everybody there up, you know, it's like, and I think, you know, I think that's like, as I was saying about the French people, it's, it's confronting, confronting the inevitable. And that's what everybody that works there does. You know, part of working in an institution like yours is it, you're confronting the inevitable and you're not, you're not trying to skirt around it. You're dealing with the fact that, you know, that's it. You, when, when your time's up, you got to go. And I think also that thing about providing people a space or a place to be able to talk about the impact of it as well, um, you know, because it's not always a positive experience for people. And I think I can hear what you're saying about that benefit of making peace. Um, but also, you know, um, many people don't get that opportunity and, and can, can have different experiences. So I think the thing about hospice care, um, you know, it, it does provide that place, that space, that expertise as well and knowledge from the staff um about death and dying and what it's like yeah i mean that was it was just such a a big eye-opener for me and certainly made the whole thing much more positive you know the way that they dealt with me there you know just sleep in a little bed in the corner of the room and 
you know, looking after him as best I could whenever it was necessary, you know. Can we talk a bit about your experiences of, uh, of, of grief, of bereavement? What, what, what's helped you at times in life when you've been bereaved? Well, um, I have to say that it's not something, and I feel really sort of weird about this, of tempting things. It's not something that I've had so much of. And, and Wesley certainly was, in terms of family, the, the closest person. You know, my mum passed on, but my mum was really old and she'd been, you know, she'd been tuned out for, I don't know, months and months and months before, you know, so you were just waiting for her to go. So she kind of gradually went, you know, that was that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you just, I began to feel... With the, with the conversations that I had with my brother before he went, that it would be that I was connected to him wherever he was going to be going, you know, depending on what you think. And, you know, I certainly believe in a sort of, you know, a powerful spirit of somebody lingering on. You know, they're there. It's like they're there with you, even if they're not dead. You know, your brother or whatever is always there with you to a degree. You can always summon up sense of your brother or your sister or your mum or your dad or whatever else because they're such an integral part of your life that their spirit's always with you and that you know once you've lived that life and they've lived theirs and they're gone you know I find myself you know I'll be doing something and I'll just I'll sort of say you know I'm thinking of you old boy save us a place you know wherever you might be so that's about it really and it sounds like that idea of the forever connection is something that helps you when people close to you have died. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, a forever connection. I'm de definitely, you know, I'll see him somewhere. I like that idea as well of, um, you know, the, the, that people never go, you know, because they're so, as you said, integral to your life and your being. Yeah. I mean, he was always a part of my life, even if we hadn't seen each other for 10 years. You know, I mean, we were that separated. Years would go by. We wouldn't have any connection at all. But they're always there. You can summon them up, you know. They're there. Well, it sounds like the connection was made when you were young lads. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, we were, you know, we just spent so much time together and did so many things together. And that was it. And it, when it just stayed like that right through to the end, even though there were these, these long pauses in between. And was he older or younger than you? A year younger, 14 months younger. All oh, right, so really close in age. Um, can I ask, is legacy something that's important to you? So how you'd like to be remembered? Um, well, you're only going to be remembered by... By what you've done you know you're going to be remembered by your deeds really so best behave yourself <laughs> if anybody is listening who um is looking after or supporting someone who's dying um or living with a terminal illness or is grieving is there anything any words or thoughts you would you would share with them larry well, all I can say is that what I found to be of great assistance was to be around that person for as much as I could, because once they're gone, that's it. 
you know, that was it. When I walked away from that room, I knew I'd never see him again. That's it physically. Um, and just to cherish, cherish those moments whilst it's tough, but just to go back to the same argument, it's, 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 it's all about the inevitable thing that, you know, that we're all gonna have to go through. So if you can be with that person and talk to them, even if they appear to be, you know, asleep, far off and just hold the hand and, and just keep them company for their, their last, their last time, their last hours, you know? That's what I figured was the big thing for me because I thought, oh, I don't want to go up there or get all tangled up with them or maybe having a row or something. And it, I just thought, oh, no, 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 no. It, just, it gradually dawned on me that the thing to do was just to spend the time with him. Just before we finish, can I ask um, what it meant to you to come on the Marie Curie couch today? Well, I think anything that you learn in life is only there. You've only learned it so you can pass it on. And so my experience of dealing with my brother's death is as it's, it's of no real value to anyone other than me if I don't pass it on. So it's like anything else that you learn in life. I mean, I find people thinking, you know, I think to myself, well, people are saying, well, how come you know all that stuff about this, about that or whatever? And how come you're telling us? And you think, well, there's so much of what I've learned in life that's made my life more valuable. And it's stuff that I've picked up on the way. Nobody sat down and taught me. I've learned it, I've, you know, a very inquisitive mind. And there's no point me marching off to the end and holding on to it all. You've got to pass it on. Knowledge is to be passed on. So that's it, really. Well, Laurie Lamb, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch today. Thank you for sharing some of Wesley's story, your experiences, and passing on your knowledge. It's been great to meet you. It's all a real pleasure. All the best to you. And I wish you and Marie Curie and everybody that has anything to do with them all the very, very best. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090-2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.